As we record this in California, I'm in my fifth week of coronavirus lockdown. As hard as it is to work in a small apartment with two little kids, many people around the world have even bigger worries. Like, will my job be there when I return? And if not, what new skills will I need in whatever the world looks like when this is over? It's a huge question with ramifications for all of society. That's why I'm honored that Sean Gallagher, Executive Director of the Center for the Future of Higher Education and Talent Strategy, and Executive Professor of Educational Policy at Northeastern University, is with us on the Workday podcast today. I'm also pleased that Joellen Shendi, Product Strategy Director of Workday Student, is here. Both of our guests make it their business to think about the future of higher ed. I'm Josh Christ. Thanks for joining us. So, Sean, before we dive in, can you tell our listeners a little bit about yourself and the mission for the Center for the Future of Higher Education and Talent Strategy? Yeah, I'd be happy to. So our mission is to improve and optimize the relationship between employers and the post-secondary education system. And really, our focus is on the broad intersection of the world of work and post-secondary education. And that includes new educational models and all the ways that there's a growing integration between work and learning. And I read with interest your latest article in EdSurge, and you wrote, which I feel just sums up our situation, great, the future of work arrived early. So can you set the stage on where you see higher education going from here, especially as it relates to the future of work arriving early? Sure. Many higher ed institutions, government policymakers, consultancies have dedicated a lot of energy and effort in recent years to forecast way out on the horizon. Uh, what does the future of work look like? What skills are needed in the job market? What does that mean for higher ed curriculum? And certainly that's all still very important. But with the situation we're in today with the pandemic, that becomes sort of a theoretical exercise. I do think we will continue to see automation and digital technology. In fact, a lot of that will accelerate and speed up. And so it will mean that there's a premium on IT skills, just as there was in the past. But we have a very near-term challenge to deal with, and uh, that involves a lot more analysis and monitoring. Many institutions that have been progressive, if you will, about monitoring changes in the job market and understanding what that might mean for their courses and programs and market positioning, we're already investing in that type of analysis. Uh, But it's probably a minority of higher ed institutions today that type of analysis and thinking is something that I think is more important than ever. Okay. And then Joellen, do you have anything to add there? And I also did want to note for listeners that you're a former registrar. So I would love your take on what Sean just said and the concrete things we can start doing now to help people out. Sure. Uh, So I spent most of my career in higher education, as you note, as a registrar, and in particular serving what most people know now as a non-traditional student. I think we're also now calling them the new normal or contemporary students. And so my lens often tends to filter or skew that way. And I think actually that framework um, and that lens is going to be really important in the future as we look at For example, regular admissions possibly seeing a decline uh, due to COVID-19. You look at where might other students or learners come from and who might need, as Sean noted, who's going to need to skill up? What do those skills look like? Where are they? How are we going to get that learning to those folks, whether that's online or in the classroom? And I think there's 
quite a bit of work institutions can do in the policy arena and practices arena on their campus to think about, for example, if you're not just looking at an incoming, potentially like an incoming freshman class that's sort of a fresh blank slate for you, instead being able to pivot and figuring out how could you help support learners, maybe they've been in the workforce, we are you know, as Sean has noted in his article, we're seeing the unemployment numbers just explode. How might those folks who are going back into the market, what skills might they need? How are they going to take education or want to consume education? So concrete advice from me would be to look at things like transfer policies, processes and procedures you have surrounding how you intake students, because I think universities are going to do a bit of a pivot. Yes, there are some institutions that have looked at these things for quite some time, and many people know some of those, but I think all universities will have to figure out, for example, if you have a course, is there a way to look at those outcomes? So the competencies, the skills, the knowledge people obtain in that, and is there a way to disaggregate, not in a bad way, but in a way that says, are there new and unique ways we can put together packages, for example, for students who we didn't see before or or weren't really aware, weren't on our radar, uh, but now may be coming. And I know we talked about this a little before we started recording, but does 2008, does that have any lessons for us as far as how our definition of student might change? Or are we in such unprecedented times that we just have to kind of do our best and go from here? We had a really interesting conversation about this. I think a lot of folks are looking at 2008 for its predictive value. I mean, it was a recession. We certainly saw uh, what happened during that recession, how people traveled into higher ed, which they did. We did see, you know, increases in enrollment when they traveled into higher ed. So there was a lag between when the point of impact happened for a particular individual and when they sort of show up at higher ed's doors literally and figuratively, to partake of some learning. I do think there is quite a bit we can learn from that, and especially from the idea that we really have to do a good job at making sure the processes, again, and the procedures we have for those students who are coming who who don't look like traditional students. So they perhaps really need processes and support through policies and whatnot that are related to making things streamlined and also validating their prior learning, where they have it, what they have, in fundamentally new and different ways. They are bringing transfer credit, potentially. Some of them have some college, no degree. So I do think from an educational sphere, we we can use 2008 to provide that frame or, or a guideline, but I'm not sure that we are in exactly the same place we were 12 years ago, and that everything is going to track exactly as how it tracked back then. So there's differences in funding. Higher ed still hasn't made up uh, the state funding support in many cases that they had pre-2008. And so we're, we're not really starting quite in the same place, although certainly there are extrapolations we could make. Yeah, and I just add, that's an important point about funding, where we might see tuition go up at many institutions in terms of what they'll require to balance their budget and be able to afford to offer the education. But at the same time, we know from uh, some surveys that we did in the last recession that adult learners in particular, often they'll get more cost and price sensitive. And 10, now 12 years since that financial crisis-induced recession, one of the key differences is the cost of higher education has continued to escalate. It's less affordable. The return on investment is indeed less as a percentage. It's still a great investment to make if you can, but there's a lower ROI, a higher risk, and the 
dramatic nature. Uh, as we record this, it's still very early in the downturn in the job market, as much as it, it feels like we've been progressing in the fight against the virus, which is encouraging, but so much uncertainty on the horizon and a very disruptive change that's happened in the job market. So I think that's why it's imperative to gather new data and to watch what happens. And on some other points, to these are things that we had to do anyway for a world of more lifelong learning and people getting education and skills over the course of a career, stopping in, stopping out, maybe doing something at the undergraduate level and building on that at the graduate level. We need much more online and we also need credentialing that's more episodic, if you will, where you get something and then you can stack it into a larger credential. Because the way things seem to be going today, as we record this, we just don't know if institutions will start up again, at what time they will, if they'll need to then close down or move online. And we're moving through that initial episode into what looks like a new era. Yeah. And speaking of moving through and moving into this new era, Joellen, I'm just curious what you're hearing from our Workday student customers. I know we're, we've talked about everybody's dealing with dislocation. You yourself said there is no May 1st. So what's the feeling out there? What are you hearing? Are there any tips or best practices to share? Sure. I would segment this into two categories. So we are hearing from our student customers much the same as you might expect to, to, to hear. And these are things that have been in the news. Certainly, if you are a college student related to a university, et cetera, you've heard about this. So things like how do we process refunds differently? What happens to drop and withdraw rate dates and, and rates and whatnot? Probably the biggest that we hear is how do we handle this shift to pass-fail grading? Which and, and this really, I think, demonstrates the duality of some of the challenges. Maybe external to higher ed, it looks like a simple prospect, quite simply change, change to pass-fail, but it's not really that easy. So your university changing to pass-fail has ramifications for many populations in the future. For example, if you're a two-year student or going to a community college and you're taking a prerequisite that you hope to transfer to a four-year to get into their major, and they have a policy that says, we require grades, we don't accept pass-fail as a prerequisite, that's a policy challenge, that's a practice challenge, that's an articulation challenge. So even if you, as an institution, make choices in pass-fail, the folks at the institution, which is why I referenced policies in the beginning, I think this crisis is going to really require a re-engineering of a lot of policies because, and, and the, the short term would be a change in a policy merely to meet this particular situation at this moment. So spring of 2020. For me, that feels incredibly short-sighted. This actually, at every moment of crisis, you have this point at which you can either just meet the crisis and do what you need to do now, or you can consider what might be needed in the future. And so as people look at policies, they have to look at all the different impacts that policy could have. And it's going to go out many, many terms and have different effects. And it's going to require collaboration, uh, not only within higher ed, but within bodies like medical professions, teaching professions, some of whom, you know, not lost their ability, for example, to have students go in the classroom and do student teaching. And so there's a lot of things here that that we're hearing. All the, What I would call it is all pretty much a lot of the normal stuff you'd expect to hear and that you want your system to be able to handle. But the other part, there's that moment for anybody that's had a kid when the, the child has those 
those sort of points at which you you mark them. They're milestones. So when they go to kindergarten, when they go to college, you know, if you have religious ceremonies, when those happen. In this pandemic, we've had Workday Student has had several customers go live uh, with registration, which to me is sort of a portal of the future because the very best that you could hope for is that it would you would go live without really many issues in a normal situation, let alone in a pandemic where you know thousands of students are registering via their mobile. So we're pretty proud of that, and I think it really is an indicator of where systems and support and such for institutions really have to go. Sean, people are coming to you for advice. What do you advise them based on what you're seeing? So we're closely following uh, the changes in the economy and the job market probably more than anything. Our particular expertise tends to be in new forms of educational credentials, how and why employers value education, how they do their own learning and development, and what those dynamics mean for the intersection with higher ed institutions. So colleges and universities that have online programs or do executive education or are simply, as all colleges are looking to do this time of year, place their students in jobs or summer internships. Those markets have have changed dramatically. And so one thing we see emerging just in the last week or two, it's a topic we've studied over the years and pioneered as well at Northeastern from an operational perspective, is online or virtual internships and projects. So students who cannot physically be with an employer over the summer or even a more extended period, and we even see this happening in terms of study abroad and you know just, just new ways to engage at a distance is something uh, that's emerging. Many companies, unfortunately, are having to freeze their internship programs and various job offers or defer them. And so that's starting to impact student employment opportunities. And then in addition, there's been this obvious wave of moving activity that was campus-based to online. But then we have the more standalone, fully online degree market, which seems like it's continuing to thrive. And the long-term question, I think, is can universities get nimble enough to move more fluidly between online and face-to-face, which is also something that we've studied, hybrid and blended learning, right? Many colleges and universities have programs where you can sort of mix and match the mode that you're interacting in. But right now, we have kind of a binary situation in this transition where schools are saying, well, we had something that was fully face-to-face, and now it's moving online. But what happens in the fall and what happens beyond to create more resilience and more fluidity if you do have to do a course or simply if a working or traveling student prefers to do part of the course or an assignment online or face-to-face. Right. That makes perfect sense. My next question was going to be, what should higher ed institutions be thinking about in the near future? But it sounds like really just realize that we won't go back, that the new normal will not look like the old normal. Is that right? Yeah, I think this has always been the case, but today more than ever, across their portfolio of activities and all the aspects of their mission, institutions need to be focused on their strengths and thinking about their differentiation and where do they stand out and what can they do well. I have have tended, it's not an ideological position, but I've tended to believe in the resilience of colleges and universities. And actually, the quote I would often use on on conference panels and on podcasts like this is how we have institutions in Europe who withstood plagues and world wars, and now we find ourselves in a pandemic. 
And despite being fairly bullish on the future prospects for higher ed, it does seem like this could be the catalyst for the type of shakeout that many experts have been prognosticating for a long time, just because the budgets and enrollment flows and and resources of many colleges, uh, not all, but a a portion of colleges and universities um, have not been in the best position. And so it, it might not be surprising to see just unfortunately, this wave of, of 5 or 10% or more of colleges close over the next decade, because what was already happening was you had large diversified universities, urban schools, major online players capturing more and more market share. So for the small, run-of-the-mill, middle market institutions that aren't particularly differentiated and may have already been struggling to attract and retain students, this is really going to be a critical period to think about their their market position and where they really invest. Which brings me to another point. So far, we've been talking about skills in terms of students or learners going to the university or going to some sort of higher ed institution, program, whatever, the skills within higher ed might need to change in a faster and more radical way than we might have thought. I think that's a that's a very interesting point that we should touch on. Yeah, this is a really interesting question and I think to some degree it's it's a little more hidden than I think it than it probably is in the reality of today. Certainly a lot of uh, focus and attention on for example moving everything online and what sort of happened, how you facilitate that. So I get a little worried about the fact that we're calling this online education. I think that this is really distance education and and full credit to all the universities and faculty and students and everyone else involved in trying to make this what is really in effect, I think, the biggest change higher ed has had in a very, very long time is making this shift. This is not that easy. And so what I think we're seeing is, especially if you look at the last couple of days of news, is students saying, hey, uh, is this really online? Or you know, what's the quality, for example, of my education? And for me, this, this really goes at this. What sorts of skills do people need in higher education? How are they going to facilitate a future in which I personally believe, as sounds like Sean does, that you're going to see different models sort of arise. So the types of skills that institutions might need for their workers and that includes staff or faculty. There's a lot of digital skills, I think, that we can see now that might have been missing. It's taken a lot of effort, even talk to a few fellow registrars and getting their staff online from the technology and accessing it to kind of handling their day. So in other words, it's much the same as many other parts of the economy trying to get online. Uh, but in terms of how this really affects institutions, my number one question is always, there's a very big difference between moving things online and, for example, facilitating Zoom meetings or recording lectures and developing and delivering a true, high-quality, rich, robust online learning experience and I think that institutions will now start to make some choices if they did not before to put some allocation of resources towards crafting and curating really high quality online experiences. This is a bit protective, you know, future things that happen. While I certainly hope we do not have another pandemic ever, the reality is things do happen. And whether it's a pandemic or it's a hurricane or it's personal disaster, or it's internal, some sort of political issue in a country, we see these things happening globally, not only in the US. And so 
this idea of skilling up lives in higher ed and has to also live in higher ed. And they're going to have to examine what are those sorts of skills? How do we shift our model? So if we rely, for example, on our faculty to create all these online courses, then you really need to give the faculty the tools to do so. They need education and learning and support. And I think it was fine in terms of the spring. The best case scenario was to keep the wheels on the bus, right? Uh, as they say, building the plane while flying. Uh, but in the future, really need to look at both supporting staff and faculty heavily in the digital skills. And then the other skill, which I'm just seeing coming everywhere here, there's really two, but one takes precedence. And I think it's one that we don't often see, at least I have not seen this in many syllabi or institutional learning outcome statements. And that's a skill that's really related to empathy, uh, which we're seeing quite a lot of in this pandemic. I think it's sort of cohabitating or collaborating with a move or maybe more recognition that America is a very individualistic nation, right? Each It's the state and the separation of states and governments and, and the federal government and all of those pieces we are seeing. And I think we'll continue to see this idea that not only are we stronger together as a country, you see this in some of the, the governors working together to kind of tackle and, and try to fight this virus and make plans for reopening, but you see it globally. You see us all now becoming one community. And somehow for me, that concept of collaboration and teamwork got kicked up a notch here. And I think that's a good leverage point for higher ed as we all sort of work together. Sean, do you have any thoughts on that about how the skills within higher education will probably need to change. Yeah, I'd underscore that this is accelerating the digitization of higher ed, which higher ed as an industry, if you will, was really behind on compared to other sectors. And when we're talking about all kinds of business processes and obviously teaching and learning itself with the growing interest or necessity to move online. And what's interesting is when it comes to more of a digital business model for education delivery and educational administration, there's been a massive market that's developed over a recent decade or two, educational technology companies, in fact, even companies like Workday, tech firms that partner with colleges and universities to help them with these sorts of services. But a lot of that acumen lives in the firms that are the partner entities of the colleges. And I think this moment, one example might be instructional design. Right? There's a whole class of companies that do good work that help colleges develop online programs and recruit students and design courses and programs. But very often, uh, that talent is not inside the university. It's at a partner. It's not to say that those models and partnerships aren't good. I think they're as critical as ever. But universities will really need to think about their internal capacity and their talent and skills they have so that everything around digital is one. And then another, I think, is, you know, in the corporate world, you think of it as sales and marketing, right? In a declining market, in a recessionary environment, um, you still invest in bringing in revenue and serving customers and finding customers. And that's in the case of higher ed, enrollment, admissions, fundraising. You know, I imagine there'll be important investments and, and things to develop in that regard. Right. You had mentioned, Sean, in your article that after layoffs, companies almost always try to replace people with technology just out of necessity. Our sales aren't as big. We can't hire as many people. How does that play into skills and the future of higher education? Yeah. So that brings us to the future of work theme, which tends to be oriented around AI, 
automation and technology. And in fact, it's something that we study at the center and at Northeastern very closely. We've done national and international public opinion polls, surveys of CEOs, and also surveys of the general public and workers, and asked them what their thoughts are on the future of work and if they're concerned about automation. One of these reports was titled Optimism and Anxiety. So there's a mix of both. And indeed, the, the clear historical pattern is after layoffs in decades and centuries past, companies have tended to replace some of that labor with technology and the actual jobs for people don't come back. Yet at the same time, we know that everything that lives in the cloud or, or can be done online is growing. And so there are going to be job opportunities that open up. So it's another area where it's difficult to forecast. But one thing that we at Northeastern and our, our president is fond of pointing out is you need this combination of human skills and literacies, as well as the ability to work alongside or with smart machines and data and more technological literacies. It's a false dichotomy if we think just about tech skills or soft skills or the liberal arts or professional and technical skills. There's really a, a fusion. And I think we will, just as we would have forecast in the past, continue to see jobs that will spring up and that will lead to new program opportunities for colleges and universities to develop, new markets to serve due to this march of technology, which may actually accelerate in this period. All right, great. And then a final question to both of you. What's your parting advice to a higher ed leader listening to this podcast? So let's just say hypothetically, they'll stop listening. Great podcasts. Wow, those are smart guests. I should take their advice and do this one thing right now, what would it be? I would revisit all of your assumptions and gather as much mm -hmm. data and evidence as you can to plan better and, and to make new forecasts because so much is changing so rapidly. And this doesn't mean it has to be a, a new strategic plan or vision or a giant consulting project, but to get a team, an interdisciplinary team across functions, looking at monitoring what's happening talking to your partners and, and your students and your customers, in essence, and, and to have that kind of intelligence on where the market is headed. And I suppose another thing that higher ed leaders often do is, is look to peer institutions and people at other colleges and schools and you know have an exchange on what are they learning and what are some collaborative solutions that we can come up with. I think we're beginning to see sort of a new growth of course sharing and partnerships and new ways that colleges could come together in consortia and to share resources to help each other out. That's great advice. Joellen? I think I would pick up on that and share much the same thing, which is something that I, I'm not sure always pleased to staff that I had for, for years, but you got to ask a lot of why questions right now. I think it's the time for why. I don't know if that's an overused phrase. There are some things that people, as Sean notes, people have just made these assumptions uh, and I think this is the time to challenge. It is the time to go back and really think about and examine things like how is your curriculum aligned to the skills that employers are saying that they need? And have we done the work we need to do? And I, I recognize that there's always this sort of challenge in higher ed about why we're here, right? Are we here to get our students jobs? Or are we here to uh, really fundamentally uh, you know, you can go all the way back to the Jeffersonian model of driving a, a democracy and, and what does that mean and an educated populace. Uh, but at this moment, I think challenge all the things. So when someone says we, we can't do this or 
This is not the way that I would do it. I think everything should be on the table. I think you should trot out every policy you can find that could potentially affect enrollment, even those who that you might not see as having, you know, that sort of immediate connection, thinking about how you can drive that digital, those digital elements. And, and this could go all the way from, do you have processes, for example, that let students apply 100% online? Uh, surprising to me that many institutions don't. There are still in-person elements or components. Uh, so re-examining those things and then going all the way through to the end. How well are you doing with giving students the tools? And for me, this is a formative exercise. This starts from the moment they identify your institution as a potential college for them or, or source for their education. How well do you facilitate their understanding of what they're building? What's their competencies? Or can they speak with confidence? Can they speak with clarity about their capabilities? Do they know how to represent these to an employer? This is more than just, you know, reviewing resumes and giving you a, a session about how to do good interviews, right? This is fundamentally reimagining and rethinking uh, some of the models inside of higher ed that we use. And I think all of it, regardless of where you start, should be on the table. All right. Well, great. That's all the time we have for today. I want to thank Sean Gallagher and Joellen Shendi for joining me, Josh Christ, on the Workday Podcast. Thank you both. Thanks. Thank you. Thank you.